Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, the Other People Podcast is a listener-supported program. All episodes are free, nearly 500 and counting. There is another people app that too is free. Everything's free. So if you listen regularly, if you get something out of the show, if you like the program and you want to show some support, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. All right. Okay. You are not alone. Right, so you have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, it was a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. So, hey, everybody, how's it going? My name is Brad Listy. This is the Other People Podcast. It's nice to be with you. I'm sitting here in, in uh, Los Angeles, California, and I have a very good show for you today. I have a show unlike any you have ever heard before uh, on this program. I know for a fact that you have never heard me talk with an author quite like Will Dowd, whose new essay collection is called Areas of Fog. It is due out from Etruscan Press. The pub date is November 14th. You can pre-order it now. It drops officially on November 14th. It is called Areas of Fog. So, Will Dowd coming up in just a moment. Before I get there, I do want to make an announcement. Many of you have probably already heard about this because you follow me on Twitter or whatever, or on Facebook. Uh, but I am doing a fundraiser, and I am making, for the first time ever, other people t-shirts. Many of you over the years have asked me, like, why are there no t-shirts? Why, why won't you make other people t-shirts? And it's a good idea. And it's one that I, I probably should have acted upon sooner, but I could never get my shit together. It was always a question of trying to figure out the logistics. Like, do I ship these things myself? Am I, am I stuffing envelopes? Or do I outsource that? You know, I don't know. I just could never find the proper motivation. But now I have the proper motivation. And I want to explain to you uh, a little bit about how it came to be. So uh, as many of you know, I was very animated about the uh, healthcare debate in this country because I have a child with special needs and the healthcare bill uh, that Trump was proposing was particularly tough. Uh, well, you know, it was tough on people with disabilities, which pissed me off. And especially when it comes to kids with disabilities, it just gets even more intense for me. So I became a fan and supporter of this group called the Little Lobbyists, which is a group of parents and their kids who have complex medical needs and they were in Washington doing heroic work, going door-to-door -door in the Senate uh, office building, 
talking with our representatives and advocating for uh, a healthcare system that is not cruel to people with disabilities. And likewise, there were people, adults with disabilities, who were protesting, who were being like ripped out of their wheelchairs and carried out of there. You saw that. That stuff moves me, especially the kids. So uh, the little lobbyists, they did a fundraiser and they were selling t-shirts. And it was a no-brainer. I was like, yes, I will have a little, I would be happy to support this and buy uh, a t-shirt, which I did. And then uh, I got my t-shirt and I started to think about Matthew Salisis, who was my guest in episode 145 of this program. Many of you may know him. Uh, many of you know what he's up against right now. His wife, Catherine, uh, several months ago was diagnosed with stomach cancer. They have two young kids. She is in Korea getting treatment. It's a very serious illness. Uh, she has their youngest child with her. Matt is in the States working. He's got their eldest. So the family is split. You know, one, you know, Catherine's on one side of the globe battling cancer uh, with one of their kids. Matt is here trying to hold down the fort and make a living. It's very difficult. I cannot even imagine. Like, A, to have to go through that. B, to have to go through that at such a, a wide geographic remove. And then uh, on top of all of that, they are dealing with great financial stress, which so many people in this country faced with difficult health situations wind up having to suffer through, which pisses me off. But here we are. They need help to get through this. And this, uh, it occurred to me, it all came together. And frankly, uh, too late. I should have thought of this sooner. But it occurred to me, you know what I can do? I can make other people t-shirts, just like the little lobbyists. And I'll do a fundraiser. I'll sell these other people t-shirts. Whatever money comes my way from those, all of it, 100% of it, will go to uh, Matt and Catherine's cancer treatment family fund, which has been set up by some friends of theirs. So that's what I'm doing. I'm selling other people t-shirts for a limited time. 100% of all proceeds will go to Matt and Catherine and their kids to help ease their burden a little bit. And I want to tell you guys about it because I hope you'll buy one. They're like 22 bucks. You can make an additional uh, cash donation if you want to on top of that, if you have the bread and you want to support, but get, you know, get another people t-shirt and know that all of it, all the proceeds will go to a very good cause. If you want to learn more, just go to otherppl.com, the show's website. You can, uh, I, I have the, uh, the link pinned on my Twitter feed at other PPL. You can find it on my, on the other people, Facebook page. It's on the web. I'm selling these t-shirts through a company called custom Inc. So other people, t-shirts get yours while you can and support a good cause. Otherwise, uh, I do want to read some listener mail. I've been meaning to read this one. It's been on my uh, desk for a while. A listener named Pierre writes to me from northern Idaho. He says, Brad, you should move to the country. You should stay in the country for at least two years. I live here, way out, with nothing to do. I chop wood, slaughter fowl, and watch fruit trees grow. The country has forced me to be handy. It will force you to be handy, too. But make sure you live in the north where there are winters and cold and plenty of darkness. Please do not buy a house with a fireplace. They are not to be trusted. Fireplaces are for ski resorts. Buy a good, efficient wood stove and use it as your main source of heat. This will make all the difference. Signed, Pierre.
So thank you, Pierre. I appreciate the advice. I don't know how I'm going to sell my wife on this. <laughs> I mean, I can try. Honey, pack up your things. We're moving to northern Idaho. The cost of living is dramatically lower, and we will have a wood stove. Like, all of it sounds relatively good to me. I think the winters would maybe bug me out a little bit, like with the darkness. Uh, and I'm not going to be slaughtering fowl. That's the one thing I can't bring myself to do. Gets, but I could see myself getting a dog and some cross-country skis. I do have a question about how big of a cabin we would be in. You know, like, accommodations do matter. Like, are we all going to be cramped in? That could get weird. I feel like I need some space. Especially if we're going to be inside that much. Like we all have to have a place to hide. Anyway, I appreciate the letter. Thank you, Pierre, for writing. I'm sorry it took me a while to uh, respond. I've been meaning to. If you guys want to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. That's letters at otherppl.com. You can tell me a story. You can weigh in on the show, good or bad. Tell me about something that's bothering you. File a grievance, whatever it is. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Will Dowd. His essay collection, Areas of Fog, is due out from uh, Etruscan Press on November 14th, 2017. You can pre-order it now. I had a really great conversation with him. Like I said, you've never heard me talk with an author quite like Will, and I think you're going to enjoy hearing from him. So here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Will Dowd. I just recently decorated it. For the longest time, it was just a bunch of white walls and no personal affects. And that was fine with me because I live in my head. But I came in one day and looked around and I just thought, this looks like a sociopath lives here. I need to put up a poster. I'm going to get convicted of something. So now it's got uh, some bookshelves and uh, a couple posters. I got a betta fish. So it's a little bit more inhabited. What's a betta fish? Oh, it's like, um, you know, one of those... Uh, smallish freshwater fish that they, you can't put two in a tank. They've got like those incredible fins, but they'll kill each other if they're in the same enclosure. I had no, no, I, like, I didn't even know it was an actual fish. It's an actual like living creature. It's a living creature. Yes. And actually, so I've gone through a series of these throughout my adult life. They've always been my companions, but they happen to, you know, die pretty frequently. And so the last one caused me such distress that when I went back to get the replacement fish, 
they had one that was a baby beta and I gravitated right towards that because I thought, okay, this one's this one's going to hang around for a lot longer if I can get him as a baby. And so his name's Moby. He's looking at me right now. He's very he, – he's got a lot of personality. I think he's going to be around for a while. That's what so I'm hoping. How, how long do these things last? Like it's like a year? You got two years? Like what's the normal lifespan? Oh, God. I went through – so, I mean, I've, I, you know, I, I had a fish once for 10 years. Um, but, but the last string, I've been getting them at like PetSmart, and I, I don't think they were – giving me the best quality because they were lasting like four months. And, uh, so I, yeah, it was, it was not pretty. I went through a string of heartbreaks with uh, beta fish. How big do uh, they get? How big, like, is it like a goldfish where if you have them for a long time, they turn into like, what do they turn into? Like, well, they get <laughs> what, like a big guppy kind of thing, like, uh, or whatever you call them, the big goldfish. No, they, they're never going to get that big, but there's, uh, there's a huge variety. There's all different kinds. I mean, they're like orchids, you know? And so some of them are like, white with these kind of pink blossomy uh fins there's a you know incredible electric blue ones there's these kind of ruby red ones uh you know i i try i mean i don't want to get too far down like addicted because i could see how it could you know you could end up with a lot of beta fish but it would be a problem because again you can't put them together so you'd have to have like your apartment littered with small tanks and okay. that's are you I'm in, not prepared for that are you doing uh are you doing like goldfish bowls or you're actually in an aquarium uh it's a little aquarium you need uh to so after again after the tragic deaths of a series of my betta fish in which i started to eventually wonder if it was me um i talked to an expert and he explained that it, you know even though they tell you at like a pet smart or a, any other kind of chain store you just put them in a regular bowl they're actually happiest if you have a filter system, even a small one, and uh, actually, uh, like they like to hide. They like so, so they, they like something that they can hide in that has multiple exits. So I have this kind of log with uh, these fronds, fake plastic fronds coming out, and uh, Moby does indeed spend much of the day in there. I feel like we've really veered heavily into the life of my beta fish. <laughs> I've never. And, you're the first author I've ever <laughs> talked to who has a beta fish, and I've never. Why have I never heard of beta fish? Like when you said it, I thought it was some sort of technology thing because of the use of beta. But uh, you you mentioned that they can't be in the same tank together. Like, do they have teeth? Right. They have teeth. They'll like thrash each other. What like what is? Uh, it? They'll spear each other, yeah. And if you put, you know, if you have two, like, if you have them in, say, like, two, like, almost cup-sized containers and you put them together, they will, like, go at the glass, you know, like, coming after each other. And um, I think there there is a way to have two exist in one container, but you have to, like, introduce one uh, as, I think, as a baby so it's not a threat. But, yeah, they're just very territorial. And uh, they, I mean... It reminds me a little bit of grad school, actually. I was going to say, it's like a workshop. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. no, but that's pretty fucked up that like you've got a species of animal where the animal or like the members of the species can't stand to be around each other. I know. And so we've had the first uh, Freudian revelation of this podcast interview because I'm wondering if now that's why I'm attracted to the species because <laughs> I spent a hell of a lot of time alone. <laughs> I'm alone in this apartment all the time, and so maybe <laughs> I well, think I just had a breakthrough. Well, right? no, yeah, that's what this is all about. I mean, this is the first of many, and I was yeah. I was going to say as you were talking about like your lack of decorations, like that that totally resonates with me because I work a day job, and like a lot of my coworkers have like family photos, and they've decorated their little space, and like I've got yep. I've got absolutely nothing, 
And I'm also like complete, I could care less about photos. I don't have any sentimental attachment to like, even like videos of my kids. Like maybe I will eventually, but like I to me, it's all like, well, it's all trans, you know, transit, uh, transient. We're going to, we're going to die. Is transient the right word? You know what I mean? Yeah. Tra- transitory do, or whatever. And, right. Do you think this makes us monsters? Cause I feel the same way. I just don't even see it. I put, I put something up and then it just, be, it becomes white noise. You know, I don't look at it. So uh, but I just wonder what a forensic psychologist led into my apartment <laughs> would be just ticking boxes on a clipboard, you know? Yeah, it's a minimalism in terms of, uh, and yeah. I, I don't like stuff and clutter. And it's like, I, I don't want to like pretend, you know, like this stuff right. doesn't, it doesn't move me. Like, I don't, I feel like it's a gesture that if it were coming from me would be done because I'm trying to sort of tick some box and like satisfy the uh, you know, the evaluations or the judgments of other people. And it's like, this is just not me. I'm just not the guy who's going to like, you know, have like a zillion frame photos everywhere. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly the conflict I was faced with, but I decided just in case somebody comes in here, they won't look around and be terrified. Uh, cause I, you know, I don't want to be a beta fish forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You want to, you know? what is, what's the next level? What, what are, the, are there any other kind of fish with like a, uh, what is it? A Greek letter? Is it? Yeah. Like, I, do, you, I, do you move on to become like a Sigma, Sigma, Sigma fish? I don't know. <laughs> so, I'll, I could talk to my, uh, so, so my uncle is actually a field biologist at the new England aquarium and he goes down to Brazil every summer to collect various species of fish to bring back. So uh, he would be the one for me to inquire about the next uh, the next iteration step up. How convenient it is to have that resource at like at at the ready. You should have seen my science fair projects in high school. They were amazing. What did you do? Uh, So I started, you know, uh, in ninth grade with just brine shrimp, which are not exciting. It just looks like powder. Uh, But then I graduated up to moon jellyfish, and I had all these tanks. these huge bubbling saltwater tanks of moon jellyfish in my parents' dining room for about six months. And when you bubble like in heat salt water, it just caked all the mirrors and any fine surfaces. It just ruined them. You know, all the finish was just like had all this weird salt residue on it. And, uh, I, you know, I did the experiment, which is like you're referring to, if you put them, you know, different size tanks or they grow larger and I'd measured them at the end and indeed they did grow larger and I had all kinds of graphs and I brought it to the science fair project, uh, to science fair at my high school and, uh, the top three projects were going to move on to whatever the regionals. Uh, but, um, I, th- I think I would have been one of them, but there was somebody in my grade whose, whose father was a teacher and indeed the science fair judge and her project, which was uh, entitled How Hot Do You Like Your Hot Chocolate, uh, won a spot at regionals. And uh, me and my moon jellyfish were left out in the cold. I feel and like that's one of that's the fix. It's fixed. It was fixed. It, but it was a good lesson early on. So, you know, life's not fair. <laughs> right. You got to learn sometime. Yes. I learned young. So where, where are you from? Are you from Boston? Yeah, I grew up in well, I grew up in Braintree, Massachusetts, which is again just south. Of, it's a suburb of Boston, just south. Um, and then I, I lived to the a suburb west west of Boston when I went to uh, Boston College undergrad, and then I lived in Cambridge uh, for when I was in grad school. So I've lived in every everywhere but Boston. I've kind of encircled it. If I tried to live to the east of it, I'd be in the harbor. So. Uh, yeah, I've never been a Bostonian proper, but I, I still consider myself in Boston. Okay, so where did you go to grad school? Well, I did. I actually did two 
two grad programs back to back. It was a bizarre doubleheader. I did a, a grad program at MIT and then I did a grad program at NYU and that the latter one was the creative writing uh, MFA. So um, it was it was an interesting transition. Okay, so wait, you went to MIT for graduate school? I did, yeah. It, it, it was actually, so I kind of split the difference. I mean, I was definitely like a math science person as well. And uh, I was always, you know, it was like my, I don't know, I was jostling in my head for whether I wanted to go in that, in, into those fields versus writing. And uh, MIT offered this uh, really interesting uh, hybrid program, which was, um, it's called, it's basically called science writing. So you'd be writing about science for books, uh, for magazines, newspapers, but um, there's a lot of, you know, professional science writers I admire. And in this program, you're taking science courses, you're, you know, sort of in labs, uh, getting, I, I felt like I studied abroad in, uh, <laughs> at MIT kind of, and I just was able to get a real taste of it and to see if that's what I wanted to do. And uh, ultimately, it was a great experience, but um, I just, I decided, uh, you know, I don't think I'm going to be uh, inventing any drugs anytime soon. I think I'm done with the lab. Just going to be taking drugs. Yeah, just taking them. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's too much work. Uh, so what, what about the transition then to go to NYU? You just did, like you, you kind of made the decision while you're at MIT that I want to pursue creative writing. Like when did you get a solid on that? Well, um, so, okay, well, there was an interesting, um, maybe there's an interesting story here, a little background. Um, so I, I applied, I applied to MFA programs at the same time that I applied to the MIT program. So as a, you know, as a senior in, in college and, um, and I was just able to get, get some money to go to MIT. And then that also gave me more time to apply for scholarships for the MFA program. Cause, uh, you know, I needed I need some financial help to make these things happen. So there's a bit of financial calculus went into the path. Gotcha. Well, no, that's smart. Yeah. You know, it's smart. I think it's like, you know, it's quite a it's one thing to even take out, I think, college uh, debt for undergrad. You know, like I think there's a real argument to be made that it's not worth it or that it's like, you know, at least something to consider. Uh, I don't want to dissuade somebody from getting an education, but like, you know, I think about that. That's a lot. That's a lot of debt burden to be like, le like entering the work world with. And then you go to like a MFA program, especially something creative and to either take on additional or take on, you know, debt for the first time for that, you know, knowing what most writers actually earn, you know, I don't know. I think it's, it's strategically wise to try to get that scholarship money. Yeah. I mean, there's so much being in an MFA program, there's so much anxiety and neuroticism that goes into it. I can't imagine also in the back of my mind having a kind of financial, like, like a Dow stocks, you know, like how much money I was, you know, owing every day being added to my debt. Um, I just think that would have driven me insane. So yeah, I think for, for sanity's sake, um, I had shuffled things around and uh, made it work. So did, so did you go to New York? Did you move to New York City for? I did. I was there for three years. Okay, and yeah. what, how was that? Uh, it was it was fantastic. I mean, I, I loved it. Um, I had you know that was that was uh, I mean from being from Boston, you're supposed to des despise New York and everything it stands for. But I, I loved it. Um, I, had, I had a great time. Met really interesting writers, uh, great friends, and it was it was just a blast. And did you um, like what did you get done while you were there? 
So I was, I was, a, I did a creative writing MFA program in poetry. So I, I wanted to be a poet. That was my, I mean, it's, I still write poetry, but, um, I was a hundred percent in that. That was my goal was to graduate from my NYU MFA program with a manuscript in poetry, uh, get it published. And then, uh, I, I don't know what happens after that. Just glory and money <laughs> and fame. Women. And, uh, yeah, exactly. Just it was, everything would be fine in the world um, if that, if I could make that happen. So uh, I so obviously <laughs> that's not what happens. But I, in particular, when I was at NYU, I was midway through my program, and uh, my life just sort of went off the rails. I, I had you know I've always had a bit of health challenges, and um, I had this vision vision trouble that this that arrived and it made reading just just totally impossible for me and uh that's not good what do you mean what do you mean well i yeah so i have like a but kind of a uh i don't want to get too detailed but like a binocular vision disorder so my my eyes aren't um they don't they don't do what they're supposed to they don't line up quite right like uh i'm fine middle and far distance i can i can drive and uh run around but um for the kind of close-up work you need for reading and, and scanning and, and moving your eyes in a coordinated manner from left to right across a page, um, I just there, there's a there's a bit of scramble in my uh, in the part of my brain, uh, so it just throws the muscles off, and then that causes muscle spasms and kind of uh, a lot of pain. So it just it was just like uh, I mean it felt like this really cruel cosmic joke because I was just a huge reader that was always been my number one activity as a human and uh and in trying to make this writing dream a reality uh suddenly i was just kind of hobbled so you, and, you couldn't read you couldn't read at all no i haven't read a book since well, i guess it's been like eight uh eight years and four months i think is that is how long since i've read a book and, and so, and uh, this came on suddenly, or was it like a gradual? Did you notice it? Like, or was it just one day you woke up and it was it was happening? Uh, oh no, it started like it was started when I was a teenager, but it just got it just it just hit a new level, you know. And what's it uh, called? It's called binocular. Oh, like a binocular vision disorder. It's kind of an umbrella term because, uh, so I, I learned a lot about, about uh, um, optometry because uh, I did years of vision therapy and a. And of course, my own research uh, to try to figure out what was going on. And there's all kinds of things that can go wrong with your eye muscles. Usually, people are born with uh, certain deficiencies. Maybe their eyes uh, converge too much or don't converge enough, or they are focusing muscles focus too hard or, or not hard enough. But um, it sort of turns out after uh, trying to fix it for a number of years that the problem was in a different part of my brain, the kind of vestibular part. Uh, proprioception which is kind of your sense of where you are in space and so there's just a i just have trouble i think my brain can't quite figure out how far away the page is from me like it's a foot away but my eyes keep adjusting they can't quite stay stay at that distance um so again it's like if you're looking 30 feet away uh the difference uh, 31 feet 30 feet not that big a deal but when it's close up that kind of uh just disjointedness um causes a lot of eye strain and so i thought i was you know it felt it feel you know if i had to describe it it would be kind of like ocular migraines which was another thing that uh, i thought it might be at the uh, when it started to worsen but uh i think it's i think it's this other thing so it's still something I, I deal with uh i never found a cure i don't know if i ever will but um it was a real existential 
black hole I went into, and uh, you get to you I got depressed. Of, oh my! Well, yeah. Okay, so uh, you know, I was this very type A person. I like went to extraordinary lengths to try to get out of my my house and my hometown um, as soon as I could. Uh, I was off um, getting these scholarships. You know, kind of was like this Dickensian Great Expectations character, kind of going from city to city, you know, program to program. And I just had had a, a grand plan. And uh, suddenly I couldn't do, you know, it's like I lost my superpower. I mean, if I, you know, can't read, it doesn't really matter um, what's in your brain or um, how smart you are. There's not a lot you can do with it. So I ended up back in my hometown, back with my parents, uh, back in my childhood bed, my twin bed. And I remember just staring up at the ceiling and just thinking, well, that, like a feeling like I just got off a 10-year carousel ride. And here I was back at the beginning. So, yes, I think depression is an accurate word for it. And you can't use the Internet or like your smartphone? So, yeah. So now so things are a little bit different now. Um, that, this, this, was a, this was a while ago, you know, so I've been dealing with it. So I learned um, – I, I mean I just basically patched together all these Band-Aids – so that I'm more functional now. Um, chiefly, I use a lot of assistive technology. So you can use VoiceOver, these different programs that come with, you know, you someone who's has perfect sight would never even know this exists. Um, but that you can turn you can turn this program on to your in your computer and then just dim the screen to black and operate the computer. And you can navigate, you can surf the web, you can write, you can do you can completely operate the computer. Um, but you're not see, very, but you're not seeing anything. It's like completely yeah. black. So it's completely so it's all audio feedback. It's all that those text to speech voices, those like automated voices. So you have it. It's really bizarre. I mean, it, it was the most fr- it was like the most frustrating. I mean, imagine trying to drive like stick like in a car times a thousand. Like you, you're getting this audio feedback. So it, the voice is at once telling you where you are on the screen and where you are on what window, and then also what you're doing. So it's just it's like it's like you're watching porn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, this would yeah this would not be a good program to use to, for that kind of surfing. Right, I can't imagine what what, what how uh, the Siri voice would convey the contents. Don't of the act screen. don't act like you haven't tried it. Come on, dude. <laughs> what would be the point of playing, <laughs> playing yeah, porn on that a black is, that, that is sad. That is sad. I don't know. Just like an audio play-by-play. I yeah. That you'd have to be at the edge for that. I, I didn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I wasn't quite that desperate. Um, uh, so this is fascinating. You can, you're a writer who can't read a book. Yes. Who yes. can't really surf the web or use a smartphone in a traditional manner. You've got to use voiceover where you're looking at a black computer screen and the computer's talking to you, kind of telling you verbally where you are. And like, like in what like functional way do you even use the internet? Like you Google something, you just need information. Uh, yeah, it's, it's awful. It's, it's a, it's a terrible interface. Like you go to, if you go to CNN.com and you're on voiceover, um, web pages are theoretically like when, when you look at it through the lens uh, metaphoric lens of voiceover. Uh, every headline is like a different um, has a different value. So it kind of goes from the top headline, and then you're in a table, and then you're in a table within that table. And so there's kind of these hierarchies. And so to to move through a through a web page like that is a is a nightmare because you don't really know where the hell you are, 
and um, it's very difficult. But I have to say, before I make this sound too much like Rudy or something, so <laughs> I so for a number of years I was that limited, and and those were the years in particular where I was trying to, I was really heavily in vision therapy and trying to roll back this thing, and so I I didn't want it. Uh, flare it up at all. Um, eventually, I got to a point where it was clear that I, you know, was never going to go back to normal, at least not with what I was doing. So I started to then do more of a combination of, all right, let me take ibuprofen all the time. Uh, let me do a little bit of looking when I need to, when I'm stuck and I can't, you know, or I just need to read. I just need to read this paragraph. I just, I just have to, um, to you know, to get this task I need to get done. And then I'll use uh, the voiceover for the next thing. So at this point, um, I I can you know I can look at my phone. I can scroll a little bit. I just can't. I just don't have a lot of visual stamina, and I'm in you know chronic pain a lot. But uh, okay, you so also let me, get, let me, chronic let me, pain. It's also something you get used to. You know. Yeah. God, man. So let me let me ask you, like, just so I can like listeners can understand this a little bit better. Like, sure. If, if you're looking at a book. And you're tr- yes. like in 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 the way that one would hold a book to read the book. Like, what do you see? Oh, um, this is what it. So this is what it feels like. Um, I can't look at. I can look at a letter with one eye, but the other eye is not looking quite at that letter. So then I can switch to the other eye to look at that letter. I just can't get them both on the same page. So. Sometimes if I if I need to do some close up reading like I'm in a I'm in a pinch I will I will shut one eye and things things calm down on the page a little bit but it's like it's just I can't quite look at a point in space like because again it's like if I if we if, we, if humans were cyclopses I think I'd be in good shape it's just that it's the two working together uh, that that's where the trouble comes from because yeah the muscle it's you know so I wish I wish I had um, uh, yeah, this uh, it's funny. I don't even th- you know. I it's amazing because there was a time in my life. I mean, this was this was the biggest thing that ever happened to me. I used to go to bookstores and just kind of sit in the cafe miserably, feeling homesick because I couldn't read, and I was just this sad, sad character. And to be honest, I just don't even think about it anymore. My life is just so different. I just what happened? What changed? You just get you you just get used to it. It's like if you had to go on a gluten free diet at first. It's like how am I going to exist? But talk to anybody who's been on it for two years, they just don't even think about it. You know, you you get used to the limitations, you get used to the deprivation, and you find other things. You know, you so um, I you know I, this is beginning to sound self helpish. I was miserable. <laughs> I don't want to make it sound like uh, I I overcame. Uh, it's still pretty pretty rough but somehow it just takes up less space in your consciousness yeah i mean at some point you got to just like it's like scar tissue or whatever you just you you got to keep going yeah and it's actually you know i find it's funny now i like you, i can tell talking to someone i'm like oh okay your life's never completely fallen apart you can tell those people who have never been kicked in the teeth by life like mine has i, I my, my life is completely falling apart Oh, I'm gathered. From our, I'm gathered so much. I listen to your podcast, man. Yeah, you can tell. This is this is 500, almost 500 episodes of testimony. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. So it's funny. Those people. It, it's not like you. I look down on them or anything. You just don't. It's just a different. It almost feels like a, a different species in a way. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, 
Yeah, it's just like, okay, it'll happen someday. Right, exactly. Just like, it just hasn't just, happened yet. Yeah, so it you know, might happen in my 20s. Some people it happens a lot earlier. So you must listen to a lot of audiobooks. That's all I listen. That's all I do, man. And podcasts. And podcasts. You're yes. my you're my target audience. The binocular vision disorder community is a it's prime target for podcasts. Yeah, we're a, we're a small cohort, but dedicated. <laughs> do you uh do you uh, I guess you like you're like you know how someone loses a particular um, ability like sensory wise and then other senses sort of pick up the slack and become sharper like do you feel like your powers of concentration have improved when you're listening to an audiobook do you have uh, a more acute visual experience of audiobooks do you know what i'm saying like do you notice I know. yeah i know exactly what you're saying i i kind of weighed it was funny because at one point i actually looked uh, at one point i was waiting for that right i was thinking you know, I'm going to be able to hear like a crime being committed across the city or something. <laughs> uh, but the <clears throat> what's happened actually is that my I can just it just like so I was kind of I was a speed reader. I could read very, very fast just from practice. And uh, again, I type a personality um, and now I can speed listen. So when I listen to podcasts or an audiobook, I listen as fast as it can go. And if you're using like a traditional iPhone or something to listen, that's usually just two times um, the, the regular speed. But I, I have different, a couple little contraptions that are from like Perkins School for the Blind, which is, I don't know if you've ever heard of that. That's a Massachusetts school. But uh, they, have a, they have a great library. Anybody who's got a vision disorder out there, you can belong to this uh, Perkins School. And there's a, they, that, that's been great because uh, they send you these audiobooks that are kind of cartridges. So for example, I don't know that there's a commercial audiobook available for like a W, you know, a random WG Seabolt, you know, novel. Uh, but Perkins will have a, will have it. They have volunteers reading kind of obscure books, which are the kind of books I was interested in. So that was kind of a lifesaver. But those machines which play those, you can you can crank that thing up till it's almost just a hum of what you know a single note. And uh, I just sort of slowly, gradually. Um, without even really thinking about it, started increasing the speed of what I was listening to. And so now when I listen to things at regular speed, I, I, I think there's something like, I think it's like, you know, when a tape gets caught <laughs> back, you know, a I was going to say, well, like, what's it like to talk to me in real time? I must sound like I'm on sedatives or something. You do. You do. <laughs> yes. It's very strange. You know, I'm kind of, <laughs> it, it's weird. It's really weird. I mean, I'm grateful because I can't, uh, I'm grateful for the time to think of what to say next, but it's it is I'm used to people uh, going at like a like an auctioneer's clip. And does, uh, does it stick? Do you like? Are you able to retain? Like, do you? I guess that that would be um, related to my yeah. question about concentration. Like, you're able to really dial in, follow that like speed read uh, of the text, and and digest it. Yeah, I used to be, I mean, I was a totally visual person, ironically, like I was a painter, I was very visual. And I was, uh, um, that was, I was like a, you know, different people remember things differently. So um, I was a very visual learner. So I was like, I could read a textbook night before the just it would just like kind of download it into my brain through my eyes, and that and just kind of access it for the test the next day. And I don't have, I did not have that verbally. Like I, don't, I didn't, have, didn't have a great memory for things I would hear. I'd have to kind of see it written down, you know? Uh, but that has definitely shifted. I tend to remember better uh, phrases and things people have said. And uh, the audiobooks I can, 
keep track. I can kind of, I think my audio working memory has kind of expanded a bit so I can kind of keep the threads, uh, longer. Um, I can, I can listen and do other things, um, better, you know, multitask better. So, I mean, just like anything, it's just, I mean, I have my headphones on, you know, the, the vast majority of the day I'm listening to something, you know, usually, um, or doing, or doing something with my headphones. So, it's just it's just a factor it's just, it's just a it's just a a way uh you do anything that long you're going to get good at it okay and what about like the emotional component of dealing with uh a disability uh having to like like and dealing with loss like you know this is the thing that you love the most this is like you said it was like your superpower and suddenly it's taken from you and taken from you at a young age you know you're just getting started really and all of a sudden it's like the entire thing is upended and i understand the idea of kind of going through a grieving process and like going to the bookstore and sitting in the cafe, which is, uh, that's a striking visual. And, uh, you know, but, but how do you, like, do you, are you coping with anything beyond that? Like, did you have to get therapy? Did you read a bunch of books? Did you, uh, start going to church? You know what I'm saying? Like, what, what did you do to get through the anguish of it? Or did you just kind of like wait it out and eventually just like the scar tissue forms? Well, um, that's a really interesting question. Um, so because I had been on that, like I said, this kind of uh, trajectory, which was very se- very self-driven and very intense, like academic trajectory, I had no template for like talking to other people about my problems or feelings. So I was really, when it, this happened, kind of at a loss. I didn't, I mean, books was kind of my, my the way I interacted with the world and, uh, and other people. So... Um, it forced me to become a human being, I would say. Uh, I kind of learned, um, as you won't until you're in a crucible, that connecting with other people is actually what life is about. Um, you know, I, I did, you know, I did, I did listen to some spiritual stuff. I got into Pima children, you know, I was listening to her a lot. I don't know if you're familiar with her. Sure. Yeah. When things yeah. fall, when things fall apart. Yeah, she had, she's got this great book, uh, Getting Hooked, which was that was the one that I listened Heard, to. Don't bite again the hook. Again. Don't, don't bite the hook. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah for um, sure. Yeah, so so that was really good. I I never fully became, you know, uh, a Buddhist. I kind of was flirting with going in that direction, but I take life very personally. It's just not. I can't fully uh, fully commit to that. But um, but it was helpful. But I I mean. I, I would say it, it kind of it was one of those experiences where everything shatters, everything breaks down, your self-image breaks down, who you think you are and what your life's going to be breaks down, and then you have to rebuild. And it's never going to be uh, what you thought it was going to be. It's not going to it's not going to be that good, but it might be more real. Yeah, yeah, man, I can relate. That's uh. That's a lot to process, but it's like, uh, I think like hopefully it builds strength. I mean, did like in, in a weird way, it kind of sounds like you're alluding to this, like you go through it and you're still in it. It's not like, like you say, it's not like some finite process where it's like, okay, I'm done. I did it. I overcame it. But, um, you, you have learned to live with it and you have adapted and you have to some degree, at least come out the other end of this thing and you are functioning, you're publishing a book, you're, you're working, you know, you're able to read books in the, in the way that you're able to read them. Uh, do you feel, uh, uh, like an enhanced sense of confidence or like, okay, well life threw this at me and I can take a punch. Yeah. I try to, 
the way I think about it is uh, I try to live a little more lightly. Um, it also, the whole experience forced me to kind of go back again, like being back in my childhood bedroom. It, I kind of was like, okay, so what, what the, what the hell just happened? And I think what happened was when I was a teenager, I was so intent on getting out on escaping and all my, my kind of intensity and my kind of narrowing of focus, um, into my schoolwork and academics was part of that. But then once I escaped and got out, I was still in that mindset, you know, and that was, had, was kind of had become my identity. And so now I try not to see my life as, uh, this, uh, as, as a way to produce some kind of impressive resume that I'm going to hand in at the end to, I don't know who, uh, (laughs) for, for a nod, some nurse, Um, some nurse at a hospital when you're like 90. yeah, exactly. Like, oh, did I, you know, do I pass? Um, it's, it's, I, I try to live a little more lightly and try to be a little more true to how I, what I really care about. And, um, and it's, it was interesting because when I, when I was in my MFA program, I mean, again, MFA programs are very artificial environments. They're like themed cruises that you go on. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's really weird, but, but you can, you can think, oh, you know, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm getting good feedback. We're all on this, this little, uh, we're on this path. But when I couldn't, you know, I, 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 cause I couldn't write at the beginning, you know, it was just this, this meteor hit. And I went back to my, um, you know, middle, might as well have been the middle of nowhere. It's not any literary culture in Massachusetts. The last, uh, person of literary import we had was John Hancock. Um, <laughs> he just, just for his signature, really. Really? Um, I feel like Massachusetts would be sort of literary. Like, no? It's like... Uh, cause... No, not, not Braintree. Yeah. Not where I come from. Okay. I, well, I guess, you know, back in the day, it included the Adamses. So they did they did their fair share of uh, writing, but but that's not Quincy. So anyways, no, it, no it's, it's not exactly... Uh, it's more like The Departed. That's the kind of vibe. So <laughs> it's not... Yeah, it's not exactly The Village. Um, so when I went back there, though, it was like a couple of people from my MFA program kept in touch, but... A lot of the, a lot of the people uh, who had had not that long ago been giving me a lot of encouragement, and and when I'd had a, been a kind of exciting young aspiring writer, kind of left me for dead. You know, they kind of you, you just I just went off the map. I they stopped returning my emails. I tried to kind of keep a line in the water, but did I they really, wait? Did they know your condition? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was pr- I mean, I was open a little, you know, to a degree uh, with some of my professors, and yeah, yeah, but. I, so I, so I, and I, you know, I kind of saw that world kind of move, keep moving. And, um, I felt a little bit left behind. I felt like, um, I was starting from scratch and that all, you know, I wallpapered my childhood bedroom with diplomas, but it didn't really mean much. And I was on my own and I didn't, you know, this, this book I, I wrote, it was, I wrote it by myself. It didn't get workshopped. It, nobody else, you know, I, I sent it out. It was in slush piles. I mean, I really, could have done this without that whole experience. I, I just kind of went back to, uh, kind of had to f- just find myself outside of that, um, tract that okay. I've been on. So what about this? What about these MFA friends or quote unquote friends? Like, what is it? What is, is, what is it with people who like don't return emails and stuff like that? Like what, how, what do you make of that? Are you bitter about it? Uh, clearly no, uh, not really. There's a couple, there's a, there's definitely a couple of MFA uh, friends that stayed with me and are, are still good friends. And so I don't want to make it seem like it was everyone, but yeah, a lot of the professors that I've been, I was, I had worked with and again, not all of them, but 
it, it you know you it's like you're in you're you know especially in new york you're kind of in this literary hub and you're there's there's readings and wine afterwards and cheese and you're meeting people and it's everybody's kind of helping each other and then when i'm you know in my Corolla in a rundown strip mall in the middle of winter outside of Boston, you know, just with like, I don't, there's, there's no incentive for them to stay in touch with me. I'm not offering much. Right. Um, so I kind of, yeah, I kind of felt like I had to eight mile my way out of my, my town again. Um, but with a different perspective because, you know, again, I'm not the same person. Okay. So for how long from the onset of, um, this vision problem, to the writing of this book uh, and the publication of this book, how much time has elapsed? Like, how long were you out of the game for? Because I imagine it, it knocked you back for a good bit of time. Yeah. So uh, this things kind of went haywire when I was like 25, 26. Uh, I wrote this book when I was like 30 and then sent it out. So there was about, yeah, so it was about four or five years where I was, just 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 in the wilderness and doing, uh, doing no writing like nothing like trying like nothing doing a little bit doing i i did some audio essays uh there i discovered there's not a huge amount of outlets that will publish an audio essay <laughs> uh, not, the, not yet not a hot new form and yeah then, not until i you never know I break that ground um yeah doing trying different things try trying my hardest but uh mostly being miserable in uh barnes and noble cafe face watching uh rain trickle down the window uh so yeah it was a lot it was a long time but then um i kind of started this project on a lark and uh it was sort of me daring myself to get off the mat and also uh we haven't really talked about the book it's a it's a strange first book uh it's a strange strange conceit um it's a weather book so i know can i lock can i describe the book a little bit please yeah so for a year i kept a weather journal and each week, um, each Sunday morning, I would sit down and describe the previous week of New England weather. Uh, but that description usually lasted just like a quick paragraph, and then I would digress into whatever was kind of on my mind and um, kind of make things tie together. Um, so, you know, I, I picked it for a number of reasons, uh, one being that it was easy to research. I didn't have to go read anything. I could just go outside and sort of twirl around and <laughs> feel what the weather was like. So it, it was kind of a lark. I mean, it was, it was really a, um, it, it was really a strange project and I can't quite believe I'm, it's actually bound and will be in bookstores. I think, really this is, I think it's, uh, there's something great about the fact that, cause I, I go through this even on the podcast, I go through it in, in my everyday life too. when I'm just small talking with people where, whether I'm talking to a guest or I'm doing a monologue or I'm talk, <clears throat> talking to somebody at my daughter's basketball game or whatever, and suddenly I'm like, wow, it's been hot out lately and blah, 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 and the Santa Ana winds are blowing. And I'm like, why, why am I talking about the weather again? It's like what you talk about when you don't know what the fuck to say. And I love the fact that rather than shy away from that because it is like the ultimate banality in terms of topic, you went right at it and just embraced it. Exactly. And, you know, it's funny because it kind of relates to this alienation I was talking about, like what, you know, I felt totally outside the world of literature. And so the weather is what you talk about with a stranger on a bus stop. So it was kind of like this could be anybody on the street. Let me just start a conversation. 
And um, that was so again, take it. I just put away all the pretensions of New York and my MFA program and just kind of started fresh. Like I really felt like there, there's no reader here, but I'm going to conjure one in my mind and I'm going to start a, a polite conversation and see where it goes. You're lucky you don't live in Los Angeles where like the weather never changes. <laughs> Be the most boring book ever. Maybe that's I, maybe I should write that one. Just like every chapter, like sunny in seventy two. Well, I kind of feel weird now, Brad, because uh, you know I, I here I am putting out this quirky book about the vicissitudes of New England weather, and like California's burning, uh, Houston's drying. I feel like Marie Antoinette. Like it really <laughs> seems inappropriate at some <laughs> level. But yeah, in New England, the weather changes all the time, so there's always something to talk about. How is and it? Up all, there? Are you, are you, like, is it fall right now? Is it like maple syrup and like changing leaves and? Yeah, it, you know, like the leaves are starting to go yellow. Where you know New England's kind of going down the color gradient, fading into its winter black and white birch tree aesthetic. Um, it's it's a nice, you know, it's gray out. It's kind of half heartedly raining today. It's just it's just a great fall day. I mean, I don't think New England's better than uh, right now when it's sort of tilted just like this this is the best this is prime time new england it's the yeah this is when you want to be there i mean if you were a snowbird you'd want to wait out at least through thanksgiving maybe christmas right i love the fall it's great all right so did you publish any part you published parts of this book online right was it was it a blog project that then became a book yeah exactly right so my my um somebody who went actually was contemporaneously uh went to M- went to the mfa program at nyu with me but was in the fiction program he started uh, a podcast and a in a in a website called the drunken odyssey and um he put out a call for bloggers you know he just kind of you would have a, a one you know one day a week blog spot and you could you'd have some designated category like okay i'm going to cover new movies or i'm going to cover you know whatever um and i so i said you know, I was kind of looking at the time to get back into the writing, and this seemed like a pretty low stakes way to do it. And I kind of pitched him the idea. I said, "Yeah, I want to review the weather. I know it sounds weird, but let me just go with it." And he didn't have much to lose, so he said yes, and very kindly. And uh, I just did it for a year. And uh, you know, there wasn't a hell of a lot of like feedback or go between with us. I just would send it to him on Sunday morning, and he'd put it up. And then afterwards, I just uh, I sat on it for. I mean, I just I let it go for a year and a half. I didn't think about it. And then uh, my actually my brother said, "Why don't you put those all together and, and see what they look like together, and see if it's a see if it's a book." And so I did that and sent it out. And uh, yeah, shockingly, somebody jumped at it. So okay, so what what does it look like? What is you like? What does your writing practice look like? You're putting together one of these essays, like like functionally. All right. This is yeah. So this is what it looks like. So it, it was Sunday mornings. Uh, I'm a lapsed Catholic, so I don't go to church. So instead, I would go to my laptop, um, use the voiceover usually, and um, I would just start with the weather and uh, see where it would go. I just I just associate, and then but you you're, know, t- but you're, look- t- you're typing. Yeah, I'm typing. Exactly. And, and yeah. as you type, this thing is telling you what you're typing, or do you have to like wait and then it t- reads a sentence back? Is it like word by word, like letter letter by letter? Like how does it how does it actually work? Uh, you can set it to different settings. I would just have it letter by letter. But what? Because that's just chatter. I would you know I can I can type without you know like I I grew up with a computer, so so I can type pretty well without needing to see that it you know see it. So. Um, I could confidently type a sentence. It's chattering the letters back to me, but I'm ignoring that. And then if I need to review that sentence or that previous paragraph, I can cursor up in a way or arrow up and it will read that back to me. Um, 
So, you know, it, it's it's weird. I'd sit at, I, you know, sometimes I would do it at a Starbucks and I must have looked like a psychopath. I mean, I just had this black screen that I'm typing into. With a, <laughs> talk about <laughs> blank walls. Uh, you know, so I must have looked weird. I, I, I can't imagine. Oh, uh, but but yeah, I would do it. And they were all I'm, I'm definitely like an adrenaline writer. Uh, I have like fast twitch muscles as a writer. I need to do it like right before the deadline. So this was kind of perfect. Um, okay, so what about because this? It strikes me that you know you had to basic like it, like it, 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 everything was taken from you. You had to, like you said you had to start over from scratch. And yes. I feel like because of the nature of your particular limitations visually, you have had to learn a writing method that is very unique uh, to you. And that has to have an impact. Like the, the way that you do this has to have an impact on the finished product. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you feel like, yeah. do you notice can... something different about the, like the nature of your prose or the, the way that you edit and how that, or don't edit, you know, in process that winds up affecting how it looks in the end? Yeah, absolutely. But I write really short pieces in that part. And that's because it's very difficult to write this way. And, uh, I, I kind of, you know, to me, I kind of compose it on the sentence level. I can't, it's difficult to compose on the paragraph level. I mean, I'd like to, I love well-crafted paragraphs, but I have to be a little bit microscopic just because of the nature of, of the way I have to write. So to me, each of my sentences has to kind of do the work of a paragraph. So I'll write something and it will be a thousand words, but if somebody else wrote it, it would probably be 10,000 words, but I think I do justice to it. I, there's a kind of compression. I, it definitely also comes from training as a poet, for sure, uh, but I really try to do a lot in, a, in, in two pages. Uh, are there any other writers who have this? Have you ever heard of anybody who has uh, this particular issue? Uh, this medical issue? Yeah. No, I don't know. I don't know anybody. I, one of my, my thesis advisor at, at NYU, uh, was Eamon Grennan, who's an Irish poet. Uh, and he was, he was very nice to me, but, uh, he referenced a, f a friend. Uh, he, he was, was, he was very nice to you until you left, until you graduated. And then after yeah. that. <laughs> well, he was, a, he was like a visiting professor. So he was just there for a semester. So he was in and out. So no, I, there's no gripe there, but, uh, the, uh, yeah, he referenced a friend of his who, who had vision trouble, but was was still writing i don't but i don't i don't know anybody i mean james no. joyce, james joyce had bad eyes oh my god did you read uh what the most dangerous book nah. the, the the uh by kevin birmingham it, it's this uh it's kind of a new biography of ulysses sort of, of the backstory of ulysses but he really gets into joyce's um vision troubles it was much more severe than even i knew i was a, i was a real joycean in uh college i was in like a finnegan's wake reading group uh, I was a real fanboy, uh, but yeah, this book really spells out the degree to which he suffered and how much he wrote Ulysses in these just tiny fragments that he would scribble on papers and put around the house and collect weeks later. You know, he just surgery after surgery. So that that book cheered me up. Actually. I was I was going to say that's got to make you it's got to make you feel good. <laughs> yeah. It's like, hey, this guy's suffering is worse than mine. It's fantastic. I mean, you've got Borges, you've got Milton. I mean, Milton, I, I love Milton, what he said. He, so he was blind when he wrote Paradise Lost, and he would have like one of his daughters or his secretary 
um, come around every morning and he would have, you know, 10 to 40 lines of paradise lost in his head and he'd have he'd to, to dic- ready to dictate. And if they were late, he'd be really cranky and he'd say, you know, I need to be milked. That's what he's, that's a little weird, but okay. Oh, he's a weird guy. <laughs> so, uh, I, I actually tried that at the beginning. My uh, I'm gonna my, I'm gonna start shouting that whenever I'm writing in a coffee shop. <laughs> See how it goes. Yeah, well, that strikes me as something that might pop up through voiceover if I was searching <laughs> through porn, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but in the creepy robot voice it's even better yes in the stephen hawking's voice <laughs> um yeah i uh i did try to dictate once to a family member they were like just say it and i'll write it and that was just so i was embarrassing for both of us nothing came out of that i mean it was just it's a private thing i mean yeah yeah no that would never work unless it's somebody like you're really intimate with like i i can't even imagine joyce used to um dictate some of Finnegan's Wake to uh, Samuel Beckett, who was at the time, I think, interested in Lucia, Joyce's daughter, but uh, he eventually ran the other way. But uh, he he was his kind of amanuensis at one point. And they were, you know, one day, so Joyce was dictating and Beckett was writing and somebody came to the door and had a quick back and forth with Joyce and then left. And Beckett, who had been just writing down what he, he was hearing, hadn't realized and then he looked up and realized he had actually dictated that intrusion and that quick conversation and joyce sort of looked into the distance and said keep it <laughs> so uh yeah for anyone trying to decode finnegan's wake um there were some intentional obscurities left in yeah well you know it makes me think what like what it's making me all think of you know like your particular methodology and uh like the intersection of Writing, which is kind of like this analog activity with uh, cutting-edge technology, which is becoming more and more integrated into our everyday lives, it makes me think of AI, and it makes me think of this, like, I have this sort of, like, micro-obsession these days with trying to figure out ways to dictate at least the first draft of my book into my phone, just to, like... Yep. As a function of like just a practicality, like needing to wedge creative time into my life and like, where do I do this? And how can I, how can I get a lot of words down quickly without, you know, editing myself, which I have a tendency to do when I'm composing in Microsoft Word or whatever. Um, but I'm also, I've also been reading a little bit about, you know, the rapidly advancing field of artificial intelligence and it's getting really sophisticated. And what talking to you is making me think of is it's making me think of the, the idea that eventually writers might be composing by having conversations with like a hyper sophisticated AI, like Watson, like IBM Watson, you know, where these machines could be given prompts and could like spit out like paragraphs. You know what I'm saying? Like there could be some sort of collaboration that could happen. Yeah. Have you ever heard of? I feel like there's already a subgenre called spam poetry, people making poems or finding poems and those kind of ludicrous spam e- emails that are just random phrases pulled together. Um, I, yeah, I, I think I think you've got your finger on the pulse of something new that's coming. Right. Um, you, but, heard it, you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's funny because uh, even though – so even, even though I'm, I'm – writing in close concert with this machine i'm actually sort of a old-fashioned writer like I, i'm not my writing is, is not super modern i don't i don't like the way people write on the internet like it, i try not to let it infect my writing what, style what is what do you mean by the way people write on the internet um 
like basically now I feel like all people do is they don't really think or meditate or self question. They just react. It's just a reaction. So you'll, they'll just post a link and then just say, ugh, or this, or, you know, <laughs> hard pass. It's almost this like limbic one word reactions. But I think what, I think what the internet does and what I, which is what I don't like is that it, makes it it bolsters the illusion that we're all a single person because you're presenting yourself as this avatar as one person with with one opinion and you're arguing and i feel like if you know montano was alive today he'd be institutionalized because this is everything he went against you know the the essay form at its heart is about ambivalence and about questioning yourself and contemplating uh going back on what you just said and I feel like we're losing that. People are just um, becoming reactionary. And, and it's and it, linguistically, I think it's doing something akin to what the Telegraph did. It's kind of shortening um, something, not necessarily the sentence, but the level of thought. Um, so my sentences tend to be a little bit longer and a little more, uh, I don't know, I'm using a kind of older music, I think. And, and I, I, you know, it's not hip. I don't think my writing, I think it's a little purple, but, uh, that's the way I, that's what I want to do. I'm kind of a little, I feel a little bit outside time. What do you think? Mon- like, what, what do you think Montaigne would think of my podcast? Now he would enjoy, he would love the podcast form. He would. Absolutely. Good. Yeah. Cause I'm he, all, my, I should, I'm all about ambivalence. Yeah, exactly. He and that the, see that's the thing is I think that's why people have I mean, do you really see those like long form think pieces? I feel like people have migrated to the conversational podcasts. I feel like that's kind of replaced those. Um Yeah, I mean, it's to, I I find that it's I mean, I find it's hard to actually read super long form stuff on a on a screen. Uh yes. even if I'm reading a book on my Kindle on my phone or whatever at lunch like I'm typically only reading for like, you know, five, 10, 15 minute bursts. Like it's hard for me to sustain, you know, a read on a screen. It just is. So I feel like if you're going to be writing on the internet and doing anything that's worthwhile, it's got to be short form, at least for me, you know, maybe people are different, but that seems to be the, that, that seems to be the fit if you're going to be writing for a screen. And it's just so, it's just so, uh, there's so much lateral movement and the access to the internet and the distractions and the flipping from one web page to the other. Like it's just not really conducive to good reading period. Yeah. I think the, you know, people compare the phones. I think of them as like slot machines. You know, I just see people kind of glazed over and they're just, they're machines that are designed intentionally to suck up your attention well, and, I, I, I got to stop you because I work, uh, my day job is a, in technology-ish. And yeah. one of the guys, and I'm not like some tech engineer, but I was talking to one of the guys at our company who is, and he was showing me his iPhone and his iPhone was like in black and white. Like he had like, really? some, he had somehow muted. I don't know how he did it, but he like, you know, set the settings so that his phone was in, you know, had deadened all the colors. It was like right. much more monochromatic. And he's like, he's like, you realize that uh, smartphones, like the iPhone was designed, like the visuals were designed. They used slot machines as a model. And <laughs> when they chose, wow. when they chose the brightness and the color palette, that shit is scientifically engineered because they know that it'll keep you glazed over and locked in. Yes. I'm not, I'm not surprised to hear that. I mean, 
it's like being, you know, in a casino. Like I'm surprised that you, maybe the iPhone 10 will be uh, pumping out oxygenated air and yeah. offering free drinks. Like, right. It, so, so even though I'm right, you know, I'm, I write very short form pieces. Um, they're not, they don't have a strong point of view, lead point of view. And I feel like that's the currency for these short online hits. You need something to make you react either positively or negatively. And I, I'm kind of going in the other direction. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of RoboCop writer, where, you know, right now where I'm using these, these automated voices in this computer, but, uh, I'm really not trying to go down that lane of, uh, uh, love what I what I see happening online. I, I just don't want to go there. I want to make a documentary about you. Uh, okay, let's. I feel let's like do I, it. I feel like like the next book you write, you should. I'm I'm not even kidding. Like I feel like this is worthy of a documentary because this is an interesting story. You have an interesting personal story, and I know you don't want to get into like the treacly self helpy stuff, but it is a story of like overcoming obstacles to a degree, right? And uh, and it's also like a very unique way of making art. I don't know. I feel like it could. I feel like it could be a thing. It's just going to be me swearing at a black screen. <laughs> I can't wait to watch this. This is going to be fantastic. <laughs> I just want to hear you, and I just want to hear you in a Starbucks. You know it's going to be you in a Starbucks, staring at a black yep. screen, being like, "I need to be milked." I need. That's what. That's what it's going to be called. It'll be called "I need to be milked." I need to be soy milked. <laughs> I'll just throw my uh, I'll throw my camera on. It, it can just record me with my, as I. Yeah, I must make the craziest faces. It's so frustrating. You, sh- you <laughs> I mean, should. You should get a camera. Get a camera. Put it up on a tripod. Film yourself writing. Like you could create this thing on your own. I'm not even I kidding. I could do it. I, I'm imagining an art installation, like the thousand expressions of Will Dowd as he tries to type an essay. But and just <laughs> yeah, but then you could also, but you could create like an audio. You know, you could do the voice. You could obviously do the voiceover, and you know, incorporate VO, incorporate. Um, you know, you could interview yourself. You could have like f- f- you know, video of you actually in the act of composition, and uh, so on and so forth. But like, I think there's a documentary to be made that could like be like a companion piece to the book when it rolls out. I know that sounds amazing. No, that sounds very. It, no, it, it sounds very, very interesting, very flattering. It's, it's so funny because it, isn't this you? Isn't this true that what's, what's interesting about someone's life is never apparent to them? Right. <laughs> like, you need someone else to reflect back to you what's of interest. And so I, I, I I'm hearing what you're saying, and I, I'm taking it seriously. It's just it would never occur to me. <laughs> well, it never. Maybe I mean, feel free to run with it. I think there's something there, and I think like the other like maybe overarching point that comes to mind for me is that, you know, so much of the time, really interesting artwork uh, is born of limitation, like limitation, you know, that like it actually is good for art um, in, in a way to have either some sort of like aesthetic limitations where you've given yourself like a very limited color palette or you have like a physical limitation that changes the way you actually make the work and so on and so forth. And that, you know, when you're working from within those confinements, um, I think it can, it can yield an interesting result because, uh, you know, I, look at you, you, you're basically this writer who, like you say, is writing maybe p- more purpley prose than the average, like, you know, uh, millennial. Yeah, I don't hold back. Yeah, like the average millennial internet act of, of 2017. And so you're kind of old school and you're in like Finnegan's Wake reading groups or whatever. 
Um, but you're also, you, you know, using, uh, cutting edge technology to make your work. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's so, it's so strange, right? Like, um, it's just so strange where your life ends up. I, I don't know how else to say it, but it's, it's, and I think you're right. Like, um, you make, you make all these plans, you have all these ideas and they all come crashing down. And then in the rubble, you find your true subject, you know, what you were supposed to write about. Um, I mean, I think this book about to go back to my, I'm still in the rubble, like looking around, like I'm trying to find it. (laughs) (laughs) Keep, keep, keep looking. I hope it's here. I I think you're doing a a hell of a job with your podcast. Yeah. I I feel like just, you know, joining rubbles, um, with other people, but you know, it's funny, this book that I, that I wrote about the weather, it's, um, there's this other dimension to it because I think I just the the experience also got me in touch with um, the, sort of a different emotional level of loneliness, uh, alienation, despair, and uh, it's been really interesting for me to uh, kind of go back and connect with figures that I was uh, close to through books, like historical figures, but then seeing them differently uh, post kind of crack up um, because all of these figures who we have sort of bronzed in statues led lives in which almost all of them felt like failures. Um, Like who? I mean, Virginia Woolf, Van Gogh, Kafka. I mean, all these people were sad cases, you know, and, and, and now their names are carved into various edifices. Um, And so, you know, it's been, it was, what I keep coming back to is that this experience kind of humanized me and, uh, and other people for me, uh, in a way that I, I didn't feel before. And so, um, if the, if the technology can help me express and explore that, then that's, what's exciting to me. Um, because I'm very interested in other people and in the, and in the dead, in a in a way that, um, I, I wasn't quite before and in a way that I'm, I'm not with AI. So it, to me, it's it, the AI part and the technology part would be a conduit to, uh, to connection. Well, I think that's a great point to, uh, to leave on. And I can't tell you how much I admire, uh, the way that you've worked through this and you found a way, you know, and I congratulate you on the publication of your book and, uh, really appreciate you taking the time to uh, spend an hour with me on a, on a Saturday. Thank you very much, Brad. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I'm going to keep listening. Maybe not to this episode, but <laughs> right? I'm sure once. And, and at like four times speed so that I sound like one of the chipmunks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you're going to, exactly. You're going to go back to your regular speed after this. All right, guys, there you go. What do you think of that? Will Dowd, his essay collection is called Areas of Fog due out on November 14th, 2017 from Etruscan Press. Will Dowd, Areas of Fog. You can find him online at willdowd.net. His Twitter handle is at Watership Dowd. Get it? He's on Facebook. Track him down. Get his book, Areas of Fog. You can pre-order it now or get it when it drops on November 14th, 2017. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget 
to get your uh, other people t-shirt. Support a good cause. Help uh, a fellow writer, Matthew Salisis and his family, and of course his wife, Catherine. Ease their burden a little bit. Get a cool t-shirt. What do you think? For more on that, just track down the link at the Other People Twitter feed, at Other PPL, or on the Other People uh, Facebook page, or at the show's website, otherppl.com. Yeah, like if you're having trouble writing, if you're, I think I feel like this episode would be good for people who might be, uh, you know, in a self-pitying mode where you're sort of down on yourself and feeling like you can't do it and like life is against you. And you listen to Will, what he's up against, what he has to go through just to get words on the page. Makes you feel like shit, doesn't it? You're welcome for that. Happy to provide, <laughs> happy to provide that service for you. But you know, this is like, maybe this whole episode is about perspective and uh, realizing that everybody's dealing with shit, you know, at some point or another, some way or another, happens to us all, which is both disconcerting, but also uh, heartening in a, in a weird way, compassion building. Does that make sense? Isn't that the source of compassion? Or one of the sources? There needs to be many sources. Just got to figure out the source. I'll talk to you soon.